0: We are continuing our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, and from verse 1 of chapter 1, Mark tells the story of Jesus in a lean, compressed, out-of-breath, breakneck speed. He is getting to the message, and he's getting to the message as quickly as possible, and he's straight to the point. Jesus is the one true king of everything and everyone, including you and me. And that's the takeaway of the Gospel of Mark, and really our passage is just a case in point for that greater message from this Gospel. So uh, would you go with me to that, this, this chapter and verse, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, and you can read along with me in uh, your bulletin, you can look at the screen behind me, you can look at a paper Bible if you have one, or you can look on a phone and scroll there. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Friends, these are the words of the Lord, and they are good, and they are precious. They are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey even honey straight from the honeycomb. Would you join me in praying for this time and those words this morning? Father, um, we do thank you for these words to us. We thank you for your presence in this room. We thank you that your words do not go out um, and come back to you void or empty, that they, they, they accomplish what you've set out for them. And that you meet us through passages like this. And I pray that you do that again. I pray that you'd once again meet us in this passage. Would you once again remind us of who you are, Jesus? Would you give us eyes and ears to take you in? To see you high and lifted up, more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So my children are uh, 13 years old and 11, and uh, they're getting into music. Um, I don't know if you remember that in your life, um, that moment where you started to sort of just really, you had your own, making your own playlist maybe, or maybe you're old like me and it was like a CD, um, and you got really into this album or this band or this artist. Anyway, uh, we were talking about this one day, and I, I realized that for me, The musician that kind of put words and notes to the feelings that I had about things that I couldn't quite speak for myself was a guy named David Wilcox, and he has this album in particular that I really enjoyed called Live Songs and Stories. Uh, In this recording, David Wilcox um, not only sings the songs, some of his favorite songs, the hits, but he also tells the stories and relates the, the relationships behind each of these songs. And so he's got this song, Good Together, and he's playing it, and then about halfway through playing the song, he stops and he just starts talking and strumming, which is like David Wilcox at his best. And he starts telling this story about his friend John, and John is telling David about yet another relationship that has broken up. Apparently John, David's friend, was something of a serial dater, and so he struggled to stay in these relationships. Anyway, John is telling how his most recent romantic relationship ended. Uh, She went, in his words, from pure fun and adventure, rock climbing, mountain biking, hiking, into having what he calls, quote unquote, emotional needs and having to, you know, talk. Um, And then when David Wilcox sort of sarcastically leans in and pushes on John uh, for not wanting a partner with, quote unquote, emotional needs and the need to, quote unquote, talk, uh, John kind of explains what he means, It's a little defensive. He says, look, there you are driving to the movies, and the person, uh, could be a man or a woman, in this car on the way to the movies, uh, they ask you a question, and you don't think much of it, and you kind of answer off the cuff, just give sort of an answer that comes to mind and heart, and all of a sudden, um, feelings are hurt, and they want to talk about it. And all of a sudden, when you're like, no, 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 I just want to take that back, really wasn't thinking about that, like, kidding, no big deal, your partner responds by saying, no, I think you were serious, and it came up for a reason, and now that it's out in the open, let's just, we should talk about it. And you're thinking to yourself, well, we're definitely missing the previews of that movie, and then you start talking about it, right? You start unpacking what was said and what was meant by what was said and how it felt. And then you think to yourself, well, there goes the nine o'clock showing of the movie. And the conversation turns into a discussion and the discussion turns into an argument. And then the argument ceases to be about what was said and becomes about what, how it was said. And you drive back home in complete and utter silence. Then John offers David this this really great analogy. He says, look, imagine a relationship is like a car. And what happened on the way to the movies is what one person calls preventative maintenance, and the other person, John in this case, he sees it as pulling apart the car from the inside. (laughs) One partner takes out the transmission of the car and says, oh, isn't this interesting now that it's out in the open? And the other person, the partner like John, says, what are you doing? Put the transmission back in the car. It was running fine. Why are we doing this in the parking lot? But David again gently challenges this notion, this narrative of his friend John. He says something like, well, John, maybe you're struggling to stay in all of these relationships because the thing that they need most is the hardest for you to give a willingness to change, a willingness to be who you need to be. But then John blurts out, well, maybe you signed up for that, but I didn't. I say she changed, and all that doesn't make sense. It just sounds like a lot of work. And then I love this. David Wilcox replies to his friend John, yeah, well, it's good work if you can get it. (laughs) And the truth of this conversation applies to much more than romantic relationships, doesn't it? When I think about any significant relationship I've ever had in my life, we come in for a tune-up, and over time, we're asked to make a significant life change to completely replace our transmission. Because we actually need to do that. In my mid-30s, I went to a chiropractor because I was having lower back pain. I just thought he was gonna push and pull some joints in and out. And then all of a sudden, he pushed me into changing my entire life routine to working out and stretching. I started to go to a counselor because I felt anxious, and he gently pushed me to figure out where I stopped and someone else started to stop taking responsibility for everyone else's actions in my life. I began to meet with two other guys regularly to feel less lonely and have more friends, and all of a sudden, I'm sharing all these personal, private failures in my life and watching them love me because I needed that. What's my point? Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, is saying this. This is how our relationship with Jesus works and then some. Right? We come to him for a tune-up or an add-on and Jesus completely replaces our hearts And gently pushes us to change the way we live, because we need to. And we see this in our passage, Mark 2, verses 18 through 22, Jesus gives us three images to get at this truth, to explain how his coming and bringing relationship is so powerful and so new, that it completely uh, pulls apart, explodes our categories First, verses 18 through 20, Jesus tells us he's our bridegroom, and that means we're in a marriage with him. Second, verse 21, Jesus tells us he's he's not just a patch for our lives, our old way of life, but he's an entire wardrobe change, a new outfit. And then verse 22, third and finally, Jesus tells us he's a new wine that will explode how we think, and how we act. So we're going to look and turn at Jesus as a bridegroom, a new cloth, and a fresh wine. Let's begin with the question that prompts all three of these images in verse 18. Verse 18, the crowd of people are surrounding Jesus, and they're doing a double-take. They're looking, you can almost like watch them doing the math. Something's failing to compute. They have carefully observed the followers of John the Baptist, and they've carefully observed the followers of the the Pharisees. And then they look at Jesus' followers, and it feels really different, and they can't put words to it. They're trying to figure out why that is. And so the crowd in the first century Israel and Palestine knew what to expect when it came to people who were biblically religious. They expected extreme seriousness, right? They expected to sort of have a... Um, to look at these people's faces and see serious concentration, if not gloom. They expected a sort of separation strictly from the people that were less than in the world, the people that they didn't have, um, these ordinary people. And that was their sort of paradigm for what religion looks like. But Jesus and his disciples, they seemed full of life. They seemed playful, even. You could likely hear bursts of laughter and shouts of celebration coming from that group. And then they were always sort of engaging with all sorts of people. The sick, the lame, the tax collectors, the sinners, the crowd. And so the crowd brings up this case in point for the difference in how they're behaving, like in the mood and behavior of these disciples. They say, well, what about fasting? Why do John's disciples and disciples of Jesus fast, but your disciples do not fast? Or to give you the Sid Drew authorized paraphrase, why do serious religious people, why don't serious religious people stop eating and drinking twice a week, even water, right? Why do your people, why don't your people, go around every Monday and Thursday with disfigured faces showing the world that they're fasting? But you, teacher, you and your students are always eating and always drinking every day, and you're giving toasts at parties with crime lords, pimps, and prostitutes. What is up with that? And that is a great question. And it makes me sort of, it makes me really sad to think that the people I know are not asking that question about Christians today. Have you notice that? That's not the question that comes up culturally. Why are you guys having too much fun? I wonder what that's about. I don't, I I guess I kind of, if anything, Christians look and feel like we're trying oh so hard. Pastors like me look like we're so deadly serious about everything. It's amazing how many people come to Hope and are just utterly surprised when there are coolers of wine and beer at the retreats or at the Discovering Hope members class. I can't tell you the number of times that people have talked about that. Why is that so surprising? And so maybe you and I can learn a lot from what Jesus, how Jesus answers this question in verse 18 because he's not just like droning on and on about some remote Middle Eastern like uh, idea of when to fast and how to fast. He's actually giving the reason for the joy within you. I love the way that the writer Robert Capon puts it. He summarizes Jesus' answer in verse 19 this way. Jesus asked the crowd, who can, a, a <laughs> who, can be, who can avoid being at a party when I'm around? Who can avoid being at a party when I'm around? So Jesus is asking. And Jesus goes on to give more details. That You don't fast when you've got the bridegroom with you, right? You feast when you've got the bridegroom with you. Just like you feast at a wedding reception, including the cake. Sometimes the groom's cake and the, and the bride's cake, both. You're feasting. But when Jesus is physically long distance, when his body is taken away, when he's crucified, dead, buried, and now ascended into heaven at the right hand of God the Father, that's when you do something different. That's when 2,000 years later, when Jesus is not at hand, when Jesus is not in body, now is when you don't, we don't always feast, we sometimes fast we fast to pay attention to our hunger for God to be more fully present but don't make Jesus' greatest point in the don't miss this greatest point in the fasting technique details okay it's really important Jesus is saying that he is the bridegroom and that is a biblically loaded way of speaking about himself without turning the sermon into a Bible study, and I could do that, I won't do that, but we could read Isaiah 54 and 62, we could read Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 16, Hosea chapter 2, verses 16 through 20, and I could camp out in all these Old Testament prophets and show you verse by verse that they're all saying to a person that God is the kind of God that talks about himself as a bridegroom marrying his people. And so this means two things. First, when Jesus calls himself a bridegroom in verses 19 through 20, he's saying he is God. Not just a God of one of many religions, but the God of the Bible, Yahweh, of Israel and the Old Testament. And I like to think at least one of the, a few of the folks in that crowd got this point. And maybe they sort of shouted out loud, Whoa. Whoa. Second, Jesus is saying that his relationship to individuals, even in that crowd then and in this building now, Jesus is saying that he is personally married to those who love him and love his ways. This means that if that's you, that he's committed to you. Forever, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, even beyond death, which can never part you from him. And so you and I are accepted, we're welcomed, we're on the inside with Jesus no matter what, and it's that he was taken away by his death on a cross 2,000 years ago that guarantees that status with Jesus, that we are VIPs. And when we hear this, I like to think that God's people don't just shout woe, that we can also sort of breathlessly whisper, no way, no way. That's maybe what makes this truth so hard to take in. But what Jesus has done, his marriage to his people, he has secured an attachment. That secure attachment goes against everything our world and our relationships are screaming at us all of the time. And that's why he has to use this second image, verse 21, on the heels, which kind of comes to us in our second point of the sermon this morning. Jesus is not a patch that we add on to how we do life. He repairs, he requires a whole wardrobe change. Here's how Jesus says it. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Notice how Jesus is comparing himself to a new cloth, which he will shrink by weather or by washing. And the temptation is to take this new cloth and to use it to patch up our old favorite pants, to fill in some gap, right? Or to cover over some tear, like, say, in the knee. But the old garment, the pants, will not shrink it's already been many times washed and weathered. And so when this new patch shrinks, which it will, the old pants don't shrink. And the patch tears away from the hole in the pants, right? And it makes the hole just bigger. Does that make sense? So when you have these pants that are already pre-shrunk, and you have this patch that shrinks, it takes the hole and it makes it bigger in the hole in the knee of the pants. And so what Jesus is saying here is this, we can't just use Christianity as a life patch. To fill in some gap we have at work. Or to cover over some tear we have in some relationship. Because Jesus refuses to be an add-on. He's not an accessory like a gibbet's charm on a plain old crock. He's the king of the universe and of human hearts. Therefore, he cannot just be a self-care extra. Like a new essential oil you haven't heard of. Or a productivity hack. This is the bullet journal that's really going to organize my life. That's not who Jesus is saying he is. Listen to the way that writer and pastor Tim Keller puts it. He paraphrases the truth behind Jesus' imagery here. Jesus tells us, if I come into your life, I will change everything. Don't ask me to come in and simply help you with your old life. When I come in, I will give you a whole new life. I will change everything. I won't help you with your agenda. I will give you a whole new agenda. I won't come into your life to be your assistant or your consultant. I change everything. This means that Jesus will not just change what you do, he will change why you do it. This means he refuses to be a line item on your budget He will shape your entire way of spending. This means Jesus will not take a half an hour there or an hour here of your time. He wants to tell you what your time on earth is for. And he wants to be at the center of every schedule decision that you make. But why? Why can't Jesus just be an add-on? Why can't he just be a patch for my life that is running well enough, thank you very much, Jesus. The answer is this. Jesus is our bridegroom. He has come to lovingly set us free from performance. He's come to lovingly set us free from our need to perform. Look, like so many of you, whether you are aware of this or not, I have the habit of performance. From an early age, I became convinced that I needed to be someone different than I am. To be loved and to be respected, I had to change who I was. And I began to believe that I had to achieve in order to belong. And this became a simple, reliable solution to the chaos that I felt inside of me and also outside of me. I'd stumble into something that I thought made people applaud, whether it was sports or grades, or working so hard or being the nice guy, and then I've spent a lifetime reading a room, and then plugging in a way of relating that works—that worked in the past—that I think will work in this present room. Right? Those people will really like it when I stay late working. Those people will really like it when I'm the life of the party. But the problem is, I so quickly lose sight of what I—who I really am—and I just kind of. Just to give you sort of a real quick life example, the other day, like a couple days ago this week, this is the problem when you preach a passage, this stuff happens to you. Um, The other day, I was at lunch with somebody, and we both ordered two tacos each, okay? Very simple. And then he changed his order to three tacos, and without even thinking about it, I changed my order to three tacos, just to mirror him, and then kind of made this long explanation about how I was really hungry and... You know, it's great to have three tacos. But when I got to the third taco, I was stuffed. I couldn't eat it all. And I had, but I, because I had made such a big deal about changing my order and talking about how hungry I was, uh, and I didn't want him to think I was copying him, I ate the third taco. (laughs) Confession from the front. So, Uh, That's how silly, but also how deep-seated this performance habit is, okay? Yes, it's certainly more than eating a third taco, (laughs) but it's actually certainly not less than eating more than I need to. And maybe more seriously, the performance reward loop that I get caught in makes it hard to ask myself good, honest questions. Good, honest questions like these. What does my body really need? What does my body really need? Or what do I really want to do in this situation? And how is what I need or what I want different from what works? What other people like to see and hear from me? How are what I need and what I want different from what other people want from me? How much of my life is run by what people are liking, not just digitally, but in person? And here's the thing about living in a world that runs on performance, on this performance narrative. We cannot outperform our performance. We cannot outperform our performance. You and I can't stop performing by doing more or doing less better. Here's how one writer puts it in more spiritual terms. We're thwarted in our attempts at self-deliverance. We are unable to help ourselves, trapped, stripped, caught by outward circumstances and inward tendencies. Our life is fundamentally out of control. So how do we get deliverance, even from the many efforts we do at self-deliverance? Here's how Jesus puts all of this in the Bible, in verse 22 of our passage. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Or to say this in the language of our sermon in our very brief third point, Jesus is the fresh wine that doesn't fit into the rest of our performance-driven lives. It's a fresh wine that doesn't fit into the rest of our performance lives. Jesus is a fresh wine that continues to ferment and therefore to expand in volume. And the performance narrative that we all live in, whether it's religious or intentionally not religious, this is an old wineskin. It is brittle and is already stretched to the limit and it's stretched to the breaking point. So what happens when we try to fit Jesus into our rule-keeping or our rule-breaking? What happens when we put Jesus into our performance and our achievement? All these things can't possibly contain Jesus and his explosive love and the goodness of God. You can't fit the story of Christianity. I can't fit the story of Christianity into any other story. It explodes other stories from the inside out the gospel story is the opposite of performance leads to reward. We live in performance leads to reward. The gospel is the opposite. It's a gift I don't deserve that explodes outward into feelings of joy and deeds of gratitude. Jesus explodes the cultural story of what success in Charlotte looks like. What if the right home in the right neighborhood with the right athle- athleisure wear, What if that wasn't enough? What if Jesus explodes your family story of good girls getting good things and bad boys having all the fun? Boom. What if, God, if Jesus explodes the stories we tell about singleness and marriage and children and work, even in the church? Boom, boom, boom. Because of this, We do spiritual practices like fasting and Bible reading and praying and going to church. We do these not to earn or demand Jesus' affection. He's already given it to us. He says he's married to us beyond death. We do these things to empty our minds and our hearts of the many stories that we've filled them with and to fill ourselves up in our emptiness with the gospel. Let me end with a story that comes from ancient Japan, which I think kind of gets to this truth in a very disarming way. One day a wise old teacher was sitting there thinking his thoughts and he hears in the distance an impatient pounding on his front door of his home. And the teacher comes and opens it and he sees a young man, a, student, a young potential student sitting there and he gives him a speech. The young student gives him a speech that he's obviously prepared. And he says, look, the speech is basically about this. He's done everything. He's he's basically done all of his internet research, he's consulted a few experts in the field, he's talked with his friends a bunch, and he knows all about this religious thing. He's got it figured. But just in case there's more to know, I've come to see if you can add to my knowledge. And so the old teacher sits him down, and he says, "Let's, let's have tea together. And they sit across from each other, he boils the water, he steeps the tea, and then he begins to pour tea into the visitor's cup. And when he, can, he continues to pour slowly and carefully this tea. And when the, when the tea reaches the, the, the top of the cup, he just keeps pouring. It keeps, and the hot tea spills over the sides of the cup and into the visitor's lap. And so the visitor jumps up and he's super angry and he yells, some wise master you are, you're a fool who doesn't even know when a cup is full. And the teacher gently replies this. Just like this cup, your mind is so full of ideas that there's not room for any more. Come to me with a mind empty of preconceived notions and you will learn something. Maybe today you're struggling. You're struggling to take Jesus seriously or to stay in relationship with Jesus because you are trying to fit a spiritual spouse into a lifestyle. Because maybe you're trying to patch Jesus onto a self-created and now curated identity. But what if Jesus is asking you and me this morning for the thing we need the most? But it's hardest for us to give, a willingness to change. To be who we need to be. To be receivers, not acquirers. And in a strange way, this surrender actually seems like a lot of work. To empty ourselves and to be filled feels like a lot of work, but I love the way that David Wilcox put it to his friend John. Yeah, well, it's good work if you can get it. And that's the point. Jesus gives this work to us. He's acquired it for us by his perfect life here on earth. And by his death, Jesus has transferred that record of performance and reward to our account. So that you and I can change. We can change in our relationship to Jesus. We can change in our relationships to others and ourselves. And we can change for the better. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words to us. And I just do pray that you would help them to sink in. Lord, um, would you uncross our arms off of our chests? Would you help us to sit up and pay attention to what you're up to here? Lord, so many of us feel so familiar with what you're about to say that we auto-fill it. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that draws near to you in expectation that you shatter categories, that you upend lives, and you do it because you love us. And it's a sweet thing that you invite us to. Would you help us to take your invitation and to go deeper still into relationship with you? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.